Welcome to Offscript. Tune in every week to hear the stories of and insights from NPs. We're your hosts, Maxine and Danielle, two technologists who are passionate about the future of patient care. Today, our guest is Dr. Trinise Goodlow, who is known to patients and students as Dr. G. Dr. G's career began as a telemetry nurse and charge nurse before becoming a cardiology nurse practitioner and nurse educator. Currently, she's working as a medical science liaison in industry while also building a business called Dr. G the NP. In the conversation that follows, we talk about Dr. G's experience starting a business, learn from her extensive clinical expertise around EKGs and cardiac care, and dive into a discussion of what makes her unique as a clinician. Please note that Dr. G is expressing her own views and not the views of her employer. Hey, Dr. G, can you give us a one-sentence intro, please? Hi there. My name is Trinise Goodlow, also known as Dr. G, the MP. I am a cardiology nurse practitioner, uh, experienced as a professor, entrepreneur, and a medical science liaison. And how did the idea for Dr. G come to be? Um, we'd love to hear about how you went about making it a reality and, and kind of trials and tribulations you went into there. Well, I have to give a shout out to my students. I was a graduate level professor and I got to teach whatever I wanted throughout the term, one time throughout the term. And so I would always, you know, lean on cardiac. And so I taught them how to read EKGs and it was a hit. Um, I tried to get the school to implement it, but I met some resistance. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to just going to go ahead and do it on my own. So Dr. G was birthed. Uh, June of 2021, and we've been growing and, and learning and had the privilege and honor of helping hundreds of MPs uh, throughout this wonderful country. So, That's such a nice origin story and the fact that it really came from a combination of what clicked for you and also what your students were asking you for. So that's, that's really wonderful. Um, could you please tell us a bit about how it felt to start a business? What were the emotions that you experienced as you considered the idea and really began to execute on it? Wow, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, a lot of emotions, um, fear, anxiety, but having this gut feeling and in, in your heart as well, knowing that what you're doing is meaningful, it's purposeful, and it is needed. Um, when I first came out, I got a lot of hate, and I guess I still get a little bit of hate over the whole Dr. G, the MP thing, being a doctorally prepared nurse. Um, some people feel as though uh, nurses should not be addressed as doctor, but I can tell you in the state of Texas, nurses can be addressed as doctor so long as they clarify that they're a nurse, hence me being Dr. G, the MP. Um, but I, uh, So kind of your own insecurities and kind of not knowing you have a product and you're a teacher, but to be an entrepreneur is very different. The marketing, the social media aspect of it, budgeting, um, even creating a formal curriculum. Um, those were a lot of the challenges that I faced, um, not understanding the importance of marketing. I, I do now though. So uh, that this is a couple of the challenges uh, that I did face. And looking back, do you think there was anything that could have made it easier now that you have the benefit of hindsight or any advice you might give to folks who are interested in starting a business like you did? Hindsight, of course, is always 2020. Um, I would say give yourself grace because you don't know what you don't know. Um, I would also say the very huge, huge importance of marketing. I didn't initially understand that. Um, and then when I say marketing, I'm not just saying, oh, just any marketing, specific marketing, targeting your target audience, um, posting things that they're interested in doing, um, showing value, showing expertise, 
showing relatability. Um, people want to deal with someone who's personable and is kind and, and friendly and um, a little bit funny. Uh, I have some uh, funny analogies I give when I'm teaching about EKG interpretation. So you want something memorable and relatable. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say to that. How did you navigate, especially in the beginning, the confidence and competence gap, or at least the perceived competence gap as it related to marketing or other business functions that you weren't familiar with before? Oh, gosh. Um, I guess I, I reflect back on my life. Um, and there's two things I'll highlight about that. One, contrary to popular belief, people can't tell you're nervous. I didn't realize that. So you can be screaming crazy on the inside, but if you have a calm demeanor, um, that conveys confidence even when you are unsure in a situation. The other thing I would say is I what inspired me, which again may be a little bit funny, I saw people doing more with less, right? Thinking, okay, well, if they're doing it, why why can't I do it? And again, my underlying rationale for starting my business in the beginning, and it still is, is just to help, to fill those knowledge gaps, um, to be um, a great colleague to my colleagues and, and, and help fill those gaps in any way that I can. So it's just a culmination of that. And yes, you do have to fake it till you make it. Um, that's part of it. Um, and you learn, you know, along the way, bumps and bruises and whatnot, but that builds resiliency. I always told my students, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You cannot grow if you're not willing to be uncomfortable. So I'm willing to be uncomfortable and, um, I'm proud of where I am, but I'm really excited to where I'm heading. Totally. The, the power of a calm demeanor and really believing in yourself definitely, definitely is, is super powerful and translates into, I think, a lot of really good outcomes. Um, looking to the future and where you are heading, what are your goals for Dr. G, the NP, more broadly? Oh, gosh. Um, I will say in the last four months, things have really taken off and I'm extremely blessed and pleased and we want to continue on this trajectory. Um, long term, I want to speak at more conferences. I've spoken at a couple conferences. I want to speak at more conferences. I also want to get, um, hopefully speak at universities as well. Um, unfortunately, that is one of the gaps in not all of NP education, some. Um, in my program, I was able to have an electrophysiology course, but many of the schools don't have that. So just filling that gap and then building the confidence. Um, I always tell my clients, you're smart. Like, it's funny to say it out loud, but you're smart. You're an advanced practice degree holder clinician. You're smart. Do not confuse ignorance. And the ignorance is there because you were never taught. So just because you were never taught something doesn't mean you don't have the ability to learn. That is so true. And to believe that you have the ability to learn something is actually more than half of the battle, I think, in learning something really challenging. So reminding the people you're teaching that is so beneficial for their learning. Now that we know more about Dr. G, we want to move on to a clinical tip section. You have a wealth of knowledge in cardiovascular care, both from your clinical work and from your work educating other NPs through Dr. G. And we think this section will be especially valuable for any primary care clinicians who may be listening in and who may see these more cardio-focused conditions regularly. Our first question is, what tips do you have for reading EKGs? We know this is your specialty, but are there any top-level tips you take? Um, I would say your best friend when reading an EKG is a previous EKG. 
a lot of clinicians may get excited about a finding, but say someone has J-point elevation. Oh, I just nerded out there. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Say someone has um, J-point elevation, which could be an early repolarization pattern. Some clinicians may mistake that for uh, ST-elevated MI, but it also could be present if somebody had cardiomyopathy or if they have um, hypertension. So if you had the previous EKG and that person's been continuing to do that, that's not an acute finding. Another tip, a uh, nuancey thing that I do and I teach to my clients is this. Let's say you don't have the previous EKG, because I get this question all the time. You don't have the previous EKG. You're concerned that this is an ST elevated MI. My tip is this, let the EKG run. Just let it run. Because if somebody's having an MI, the ST elevation is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And hopefully they're symptomatic, right? Like generally people, well, you could be asymptomatic, say you're a diabetic or whatnot, but I mean like the typical patient isn't going to be completely asymptomatic if they're having this massive MI. So if you were like, well, is this early repolarization pattern or is this an ST elevated MI? You could just leave the strip on them and let it run. And if it's getting progressively worse, then that would be a reason to, to get upset. But if not, um, yeah, that may be a baseline finding because they have other underlying cardiac ideology. Okay. What tips do you have for diagnosing and or treating patients with coronary artery disease? Oh, wow. Um, one of my favorite things to discuss with patients who have coronary artery disease is lifestyle modification. I think sometimes as clinicians, we get so wrapped up in the minutia of the treatment and the procedures and, and the stents and, you know, all that stuff. But taking the time to sit down with a patient and just ask, hey, do you exercise? I don't like assuming things about patients. Um, hey, do you smoke? Um, hey, what's your diet like? Do you have do you eat fast food a lot? Um, you know, do you, do you get good sleep? Do you go to the dentist? You know, all of these sort of things are conversation starters. Because not only are you assessing what their baseline is to where you can fill that gap, you're also assessing health literacy. And health literacy is the piece that a lot of times gets forgotten. The average reading level is fourth grade. Not even patients, but clinicians. When I'm lecturing for Dr. G, I don't like big words. I like to use simple words to explain things in a matter-of-fact way. There's no need to throw out all of these confusing terms when we can just get down to business, say what it is, and move on. So um, that's what I would say is, from my experience, patients kind of miss that miss that connection with a clinician that's going to go that route rather than saying, okay, we're going to give you this pill. They're not understanding why they're non-compliant. And then they do end up in the hospital. Are there different tips that you'd give for patients that have cardiomyopathy or heart failure? Oh, definitely. Um, It just depends if it's an ischemic cardiomyopathy versus a non-ischemic. Because if it's an ischemic cardiomyopathy, they likely do have some coronary disease, and that would be, you know, working them up for that to potentially go to the cath lab and, you know, go 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 down that rabbit hole. Um, What's interesting about cardiomyopathy slash heart failure: the mortality rate for untreated heart failure is five years, five year mortality rate, and that's similar rate to to getting diagnosed with lung cancer. So, if you will, it's almost the the cancer of the heart, if you will, so to speak. Um, I absolutely love my heart failure patients, uh, when I was seeing them and I like to call cardiomyopathy heart failure junior, uh, cause they have a little bit of a reduced EF or of course 
you know, we have diastolic heart failure, which they may have a perfectly normal EF versus systolic, of course, it's going to be decreased. Um, but treating heart failure patients is one of the most rewarding patient populations just because what you do, they typically just feel better. And so that's a challenge, for example, if you say, oh, this person has AFib. Okay, you have AFib, you've got to be on this blood thinner. Well, if I'm on a blood thinner, I don't necessarily feel better. So that would decrease my likelihood to be compliant with the regimen. Versus with heart failure, I'm going to feel I can breathe better. My legs aren't swollen. I have more energy. So even though the treatment regimen for heart failure can be a lot, I think patients can wrap their mind around it better because it's kind of, for lack of better phrasing, instant gratification. I'm feeling better, so I'm going to be self-fulfilling and keep doing it. So That makes a lot of sense in the difference between something that's more actively symptomatic for, versus more of a, a silent um a silent disease. How do you think about treating patients with hypertension, which I imagine falls more into the silent category? So um, hypertension is near and dear to my heart. I did my doctoral dissertation on hypertension management, specifically JNC8 guidelines seven and eight, which focused more on the African-American population. Um, hypertension is known as a silent killer. Um, and that is, in all my years of seeing patients, that is the most challenging thing to tell someone they need something and they don't feel it. People are very like, if I feel fine, I am fine. And that's not true. Even going back to the AFib example, some people are asymptomatic with AFib. Some are symptomatic, but if you're asymptomatic, it's like, well, why do I need this pill? And the same goes for hypertension. But I was very visual, visual in my clinical practice. And so I said, well, if your blood pressure is high, so it's 180 over 100, you have this hard pound on your brain and your heart and your kidneys that is wearing it down versus your pressure's lower this is a lot friendly friendlier to your organs to preserve them so that was kind of the kind of the approach that i that i took with that so that's a very helpful visualization especially for something that you might not otherwise feel to really get a visceral sense of actually what it's doing to your body. I'm sure that's very helpful for patients. What about tips for um, diagnosing or treating patients with hyperlipidemia? Oh, I love my lipids. <laughs> I guess I love a lot of stuff. That's why I do cardiology. Love them all. <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying I love everything, but it's, it's, it, it's so true. Um, hyperlipidemia, again, is one of those things they're not going to feel. feel. So, you know, that is a conversation that needs to be had. Um, there are a lot of exciting hyperlipidemia medications out on the market. Exciting. Um, I love my PCSK9 inhibitors. Of course, and glycerin is new and hot on the market, although we won't have outcome data until 2026. And then from what I understand, Amgen is working on a medication. It's a phase two trial, I believe, currently, um, looking at a drug to lower LP little a to see if we get better long-term cardiovascular outcomes that way. Um, the lipid conversation I have with patients, um, I would lean more towards, um, again, starting with lifestyle, you know, what are you eating? What are you doing? But as far as being a clinician, my number one goal is treating that LDL. I'm attacking that LDL like the plague. So in a person who doesn't have cardiovascular disease, we want the LDL to be under 100. In America, if you're LDL, if you've had a heart attack or a stroke or, or even a diabetic, we want that LDL under 70. However, the European Society of uh, Medicine and even Cardiology 
they they say the general pop should be under 55. And then if you've had an event over there, they want it under 50. So the clinical evidence is quite clear. The lower the LDL, the better. We're born with an LDL in the 30s. So you think about that and you have people walking around with a 150 and 200 and 280 and all of these crazy numbers. It is our lack of movement, our lifestyle, and our diet. In genetics, of course. Genetics is the one thing you cannot help, but all the others are certainly modifiable. Another one where the lifestyle change is so important. And how do you explain the benefit of doing that if you're not feeling it immediately? Well, the approach that I kind of took with patients is um, I'm asking you, I always believed in the 80-20 rule. 80% of the time, I want you to be on the up and up. The only thing that I stressed that was non-negotiable was the smoking. But everything else was always an 80-20 rule. 80% of the time, you do what you're supposed to do. 20% of the time, it's an anniversary. It's a kid's birthday. You're on vacation. Sure, enjoy yourself. Live your life. But we have to be responsible because pick your hard right? It's hard to be sick. It's hard to be in the hospital. It's hard to be on, on 15 medicines. It's also hard to exercise and eat healthy. So you have to pick your heart. Life is hard. Pick your heart. With that in mind, do you have any tips on encouraging medication adherence from your patients? Um, my um, approach uh, with medication adherence was asking them, why are you on this? Why, why, what do you think? It's very important to me to know what the patient thinks, because if you express to me what you're thinking and that's a misconception, I can clear that up. Or if you're right, I can reinforce and re-encourage you. Um, again, very, very big on um, analogies and, and, and whatnot to, to uh, for example, Jardians and Farsiga, we, we see that with heart failure. One of my favorite drug classes to give for heart failure and the clinical data is out there in the, in the guidelines and whatnot but just explaining how it takes the load off the heart. So I would basically say, let's pretend this stool, because we'd be in a patient room, right? Let's pretend this stool weighed five pounds and I'd ask you to pick the stool up and walk it across the room. What would you say to me? And they say, yeah, I'd pick it up and walk it over. I said, okay, let's pretend the stool weighs 300 pounds now. And I asked you to pick the stool up and walk it across the room. What would you say to me? Of course, it's a mixture of, oh, you're crazy or oh, I can't do that or, you know, and I said, exactly. That's what Jardiance is doing. It's taking, or Farsiga, because they're both in the same drug class. Um, it's taking the load off your heart. If I take the load off, it's easier to move. We want your heart to have an easier time. This is why you're on the medicine, to have an easier time. So that's how I would explain medicines to patients, to try to get that visual of why are we on this? What are we doing? And how's it going to help me? That's a wonderful example of using analogies to really meet patients where they are and make sure that they understand and can participate in the decision-making as well. Do you have any tips for coming up with those analogies? Is that something that you have a process for, or do they just kind of arrive in your mind? <laughs> uh, it is definitely the latter, not the former. Like I said, I think I'm a little, um, I've been creative. Um, and even to circle it back to Dr. G, the MP with my business, I teach EKG um, interpretation, hypertension and lipids with analogies. Um, I find that analogies are the best way to teach anybody, whether it's a clinician or my students or, my, or patients. It creates those associations and connections in the brain, and it makes it very, very easy so that you don't forget it. Analogies are, are certainly very powerful as, as education tools. Thinking about 
people who are listening that might be interested in also moving into an educator role for NPs, aside from the use of analogies, do you have any tips for them on how to really be great educators in addition to great clinicians? One thing I prided myself on when I was at at the university, because I was there for two years, um, it always made me feel good if a student would call or text me. Because that meant that they viewed me as somebody who was approachable, somebody who was friendly, and somebody that was willing to help. Um, I think a lot of times um, some individuals, not not all, can be ego driven um, and think that they're better than others. And that's not that's not something that I condone, promote, or even really want to be a part of. We're all here to serve a purpose. Um, when I lecture at Dr. G, I always say there's um, the grouchy grouchies. Um, I don't understand the grouchy grouchies because we were all novice at some point. Your job as a clinician, you got in it just to help. No, yes, help patients, but you should be a helpful heart regardless of who it is. So give people the time, give them the space to learn, have them be able to fail in a safe environment, you know, because that's how you grow. That's how you learn. Um, so I'm not really big on this whole idea that, oh, I'm better than you and because I did this and you don't know this. Like it just kind of it rubs me the wrong way. And I just I don't associate with people like that. Um, having said that, I also don't believe in being the smartest person in the room. I think a lot of people get intimidated by smart people. But my thing is that shine's going to rub, rub off on me. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, iron sharp sharpens iron. So um, I, I seek to be in situations where um, I can learn and be a part of clinicians who have been doing it longer than I've been alive and just be in awe of them and have respect for them. So that makes sense. It, it seems like creating a culture of psychological safety and also thinking of yourself as a lifelong learner and student really give you a sense of both empathy and also give students a sense of comfort and and safety as well. So that's that's really beautiful. Um, We'd love to move on to a slightly different topic now, which is kind of going a bit deeper into your secret sauce as a clinician. So in this next section, we'll ask you some questions about your patient care approach more broadly and experiences you've had in the field. Sure. Our first question for you is, what sets your approach to patient care apart from others? In other words, what do you think patients would say is your secret sauce that makes you an amazing clinician? I got a phone call two weeks ago from a former patient. He tracked me down and found my number. He said, hey, I'm out of my blood pressure medicine. Can you refill it? And I was like, no, I can't do that because I'm no longer at the clinic and everything. I said, you got great detective skills to find my information online. But that is a prime example of what I'm talking about. He felt comfortable enough to seek me out, call, <laughs> and try to have a, a, a request granted. I had a patient reach out to me um, on Facebook and said, you know, I'm having some symptoms. I'm scared. What should I do? You know, and I guided him and directed him to the ED and, and, and helped him with that. So I, um, the biggest honor that, and I've said this over the years so many times and it bears repeating, the biggest honor that anybody could give you is to trust you with their health. You think enough of me that you're not even, not only do you ask my opinion, but you take my direction. I don't know how that level of trust 
that's very, very delicate and fragile and it takes work. Um, so I, I am really am, am in awe of patience that they, little old me, <laughs> you, you've trust and believe in me enough to guide you through some scary times in your life. Um, so I just reproach it with kindness, respect. Um, I thank patience. You know, a lot of times I say, well, thank you for your time. Thank you. You know, you didn't have to see me. You could have said, no, I don't want to see her. I want to see someone. But you didn't. And you trusted me. And we, we have that r- rapport. Um, there's times I would stay way after clinic work, which a lot of nurse practitioners, a lot of clinicians do this. I'm not saying this is special. But what I'm saying is they're so in awe when you do it. And then you get the hug. And then it's like, whatever you say, they they don't question you. Right. If I ask them, I say, OK, we got to do this medicine because this is going on this. We have to do this. And I've got it. There's no because the trust, the relationships are already there. So there's no like, you know, conflict. It's just I trust you implicitly. So, yes, let's do it. The trust piece is so important in terms of if a patient really feels heard and understood by their clinician, it totally changes the way that then you're interacting and that then you can actually bring care that changes the trajectory of the patient's health. So you already shared a couple of stories um, of patient interactions. I wonder if you have any other specific instances you want to share where your approach made a notable difference in a patient's outcome. Oh gosh, to quickly go through my memory. (laughs) Um, there's been so many patients. I will say this. Um, when I was seeing patients, I was slow. You know, you were going to wait for me. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't very fast. The waiting room, it's like, who's patients? That's all Trenise's patients in the waiting room. And so, um, <laughs> so it was funny when I was a brand new nurse practitioner, obviously you, you're slow because you're learning and whatnot. But I just found it to be challenging because a lot of my patients had like 25 diagnosis. And like I was trying to address as many as I possibly could reasonably, of course, within the cardiac realm, because they all kind of domino effect, you know. And so I was at the clinic long enough. And so it got to the point where patients wouldn't mind waiting. And I, I had a long wait, like I'd be running an hour, sometimes an hour and a half behind. And most of the patients would say this. They'd say, if she's taking the time for them, she's going to take it with me. I will wait as long as I need to wait. So that was refreshing to me because we live in a world of me, 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 and I'm impatient and hurry up. I want to be seen. But it was humbling to me that patients knew that I cared enough. I'm going to take my time. I don't rush. I'm not trying to make you wait. But at the same time, if I'm in in an appointment and somebody starts having chest pain, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to, well, sorry, I'm... 15 minutes behind. So I got to see this person and, you know, leave you in chest pain. That's not ethical. Um, so I would just say broadly to answer your question, um, that's, that would be my response. But over the years, I mean, I've cried with patients. Um, and I think about their families, you know, I think about, because a lot of times you're talking to the patient, but you have to educate the family too, especially when they're elderly, you know, So building those bonds and those connections and they come give you a hug and then they got some cookies and they got stuff I don't need. And, you know, I'll see you next time. And I'll, you know, that sort of thing, all the gifts, the love, the cards, um, it makes it worth it. It so makes it worth it. 
Yeah. Again, it goes back to that connection of your patients trust you. You have a deep connection with, with each of them, and then it allows you to deliver the best care to each person. Before we move on from patient stories, wondering if you could share a complex case and how you approached it. A couple of them come to mind. When you have someone say they have a fib and then they have low blood pressure, um, and then they may have some renal dysfunction. And then one lady, she kept having nosebleeds. And so that makes anticoagulation challenging, we'll say. Um, kind of like I said, you know, a little earlier in the podcast, um, I'm not a person who's afraid to ask for help. I think it's very important as a clinician to know your limits and know your knowledge. Know if you're in over your head, know if you're not over your head and who are your resources. So I was certainly blessed to have a, a lot of great um, physician support. Um, we worked very well together. Um, they actually told me initially, they said, you know, we're training you now, but just know you're going to be autonomous. These are your patients. We're here to support you. That way, if something crazy happens, we're here for you. They didn't want me to feel like I was alone, but they wanted me to know you're running the show. These are your patients. We're here to support so if it came to the point where I was having a clinical issue or something I had never seen before, or I just needed some guidance because, you know, whatever the situation is, I would lean on them for mentorship and they were, uh, they were fantastic. So. It makes a big difference to have people that you can go to and having the self-awareness to understand where you're at and where you do need to call in help is really important, especially when you have taken on such a big responsibility of, of someone's health. Well, I'll piggyback a little bit more off that. So I think it's very important in healthcare to eliminate an ego. Um, now, having said that, <laughs> we know some clinicians have egos. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but you know, some of them do. I think for me, your purpose is bigger than you. So you're getting, you're impeding in that patient's care. And I know I personally couldn't look in the mirror. I couldn't live it down if I knew I stopped something for someone. Like I didn't give it my all. I was worried about me and I wasn't worried about them. That's not, that's not the call. Like that's not the job. The job is to, to put the patient first and do everything you humanly possibly can to make sure their outcome is positive based on evidence-based practice. That is your job. Now, people do it in many different ways, which is fine. There's more than one way to do something. But at the crux of it, it has to be about the patient. So if you're not about the patient, you're not right. You're not right. That is the slogan. If you're not about the patient, you're not right. That's, that's yeah. amazing. We've learned so much from your clinical knowledge and your clinical experiences. But before we wrap up, we want to ask you a few questions to get a chance to learn about your work mindset more broadly and the habits and the learnings that have helped you find so much success in the long run. So the first question is, do you have any advice for your younger NP self? Be patient. You're going to get it. Perfect. You spoke a bit about some new medications that are in clinical trial or new medications that are launching soon. How do you more broadly stay up to date with the latest advancements and trends in the industry and especially within your specialization? Great question. Um, I'll answer it two, two-parter. Uh, when I was in clinical practice, um, the sales reps. So I know a lot of clinicians, um, I shouldn't say I know a lot. I know some clinicians get annoyed. They're running behind. 
sales reps there, they kept me up to date. There's a new medicine. Okay, tell me about it. Okay, what's that article? I knew what was hot and I knew it was coming out. So shout out to the sales reps um, and for, for that knowledge and even the medical science liaisons I came across. They kept me up to date. As far as my current role staying up to date, it's a bit easier because um, I work in the pharmaceutical in- industry. So there's already resources that keep me up to date. So it's less effort, I guess, right now to do it. But having said that, that's what I did when I was a clinician. Is there a mistake that you made during your career earlier earlier on that you want others to avoid? Wow, I'm going to think about that. Have I? Well, of course, I've made a mistake. The question is, what was <laughs> Oh gosh. Um, I will say this, not necessarily a mistake, but a lesson. Um, there was a time I thought I wanted to be a CRNA. So I was very gung ho on getting in the unit. Um, so I was a nurse for two years and I, um, talked my way into getting a CVICU job. Um, yeah, wasn't for me. Wasn't for me. Um, so understanding that what a plan is and what may actually be practical for you is two different things. So being able to pivot. So I would say, like I said, that wasn't necessarily a mistake, but more of being open to what is for you instead of forcing something just because you think this is what you should be doing. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense in terms of taking signals from the environment that you're in and not having a super static mindset, but letting yourself evolve and and grow as well. Is there a memorable moment from your career that really significantly impacted your growth as an NP? When I was two years in the cardiology practice and I became a professor, because as the old adage says, you don't know it till you can teach it. Wonderful. Yeah. The, the power of teaching is, is very real and it's something that seems to be a consistent thread throughout your career and probably the, the future of your career as well. We, we want to close our, our episodes by asking each of our guests the same two questions. One is about the healthcare system more broadly, and the other is a bit more of a personal reflection question. In terms of the healthcare system more broadly, what changes would you like to see in the American healthcare system to really improve patient care? Oh, wow. So you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> there are several things I think need to happen. Number one, we need clinicians running healthcare. Healthcare is becoming a business, and that's quite a shame. I am not saying that people shouldn't make a living. I'm, that, that's not what I'm saying. But when you have people that are profiting tens of millions of dollars, you've never touched a patient before. You, you, you've never held someone's hand when they died. You, you, don't, you don't know, and then you tell me I only have X amount of time to see a patient. So more is not more, less is more. People talk about quality, but it's turning into this machine, right? And you're losing great clinicians, myself included, who get tired of being on the the merry-go-round. And you say there's a shortage of nurses, there's a shortage of physicians. Well, (laughs) change the system. You're burning us out. We're, we're tired. Give us a break. And it goes for all of us, our respiratory therapist colleagues, the PAs, the PharmDs, everyone, physical therapy, case management. Which brings me to my second point. 
multidisciplinary care is huge. Some places practice it, some of it, some places don't. It's very important that people are able to shine in their specialty and let them do what they do best. Um, but I am very unpleased of the business of healthcare. It's becoming a monopoly. You don't see private practices, hardly any. Um, I, I, I just don't care for it. I don't like the business of it. As you know, we, we believe deeply in clinician independence, private practice, and clinicians retaking ownership of, of healthcare as a whole. Do you have thoughts on practically how that could happen? Wow. What a novel idea. <laughs> what a novel idea. Um, I, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure where we lost our way. I mean, I may get in trouble with the statement, but I mean, this is America, right? The almighty dollar. I think someone saw an opportunity to, because initially I don't think healthcare was seen as a business, right? You got sick. I just want to get better and that's it. But then it turns into a business. I would like to see that be a bit reversed. Another thing I would like to see in healthcare, again, it's going to get me in trouble, but I get a lot of hate anyway, so <laughs> I'll add it to the list. Um, 26 states, if I'm correct in my count, 26 states currently have full practice for nurse practitioners and all VAs do. Um, nurse practitioners are very competent and capable providers. You say there's a physician shortage, which I don't doubt. I mean, there's a nursing shortage. I mean, there's shortages all over the place. My idealistic world, I would say you would see a nurse practitioner first or a PA. And if you needed to have surgery or you had some kind of rare disease or you had some kind of special thing that required something, then you would see a physician. I think that would take some of the burden off because as an MP, even in cardiology, yes, I am so showing, seeing lower acuity patients. Like, yes, I may catch the aortic stenosis, but I'm not going to be the one that, you know, is actively going to fix the aortic stenosis. So training MPs and PAs to work in that space, identification and working them up, almost like how some of these insurance companies make you have a referral to see someone. Well, you have to see an MP or a PA first then we can say, you need to go here and you go see the surgeon for this. So you go see the nephrologist because you need to get a shunt put in because you need that, you know, or do, or we do the referrals. In an ideal healthcare system, the clinicians would take ownership. And that's what I would like to see done. Like I said, y'all don't, don't, don't hit me up on Facebook and, you know, trash me too bad, y'all. <laughs> None of that. <laughs> to your point though, having a clinician manage a patient earlier on and for lower acuity things, and then be able to help them navigate through the more complex parts of the healthcare system, whether it's referrals, whether it's testing, it's a better use of time in those cases, um, because then you can really get catch something early on and get to the care you need as a patient early on, instead of having to navigate through the system all by yourself. So that resonates. Um, our last question is, what is some advice you want everyone to hear or to walk away with? It can be clinical or non-clinical. Gosh, uh, y'all are getting deep. Let's see. <laughs> I want this to be good. <laughs> Life is um, interesting. Life is full of ups. It's full of downs. 
But then the down period, well, I should say I'm a former athlete. So never get too high, never get too low. And when you are in a valley, make sure that you are surrounding yourself with friends and family. Um, uh, I am a Christian and I'm proud to say I'm a Christian. So leaning on faith, um, God has bailed me out more times than, <laughs> yeah, he's, <laughs> he's bailed me out more times than I probably deserve. Um, but also understanding your limits and your capacity is important. Um, so that's what I would say. Never get too high, never get too low and understand, lean on, lean on God and make sure you know your capacity and your limits. I love that. That's really good advice to walk away with. Before we close out, is there anything we didn't ask you about that you want to shout out? Um, there are so many other things that we know you touched in your career. So this is only one snippet of, of Dr. G and all that you do. Oh gosh. Um, I will say one, I will make a statement. Um, I've had this conversation with people before. Um, some people agree, some people disagree, which in talking to you guys, I'm sure you understand that I'm okay with people disagreeing with me. We're all, we're all can have our own opinion. I just like people to disagree respectfully. Um, I personally believe that every primary care provider, whether it be a physician, PA, MP, I don't care who you are. It's perplexing to me how people don't get baseline EKGs. That really bothers me. You know, heart disease is the number one killer in this country. And if you're doing your annual exams, as you should, you should be getting an annual EKG. Because at what point in your life would you ever have the opportunity to have an EKG? So in my opinion, like I said, this may ruffle some feathers. Um, patients should demand for an EKG at their annual visit. And, you know, some clinicians can't read them. That's why they don't get it. Others may not care. Um, some do get it. I know that there are some that do get it. But for those that don't get it, I would implore you to get an annual EKG on patients. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and sharing all of your wisdom, both clinical and business and life more broadly. Um, this has been really interesting and insightful and we really appreciate it. 